Welcome to our newest episode of the Lebanese Physicians uh, Podcast. And today our guest is Dr. Lama Alzain, and we will be discussing uh, the financial sustainability in healthcare, especially with the rising costs in the United States healthcare system. And we will discuss it mostly in relation to uh, palliative care and, and end-of-life care. Dr. Alzain actually did her medical school at the American University of Beirut, uh, followed by a family medicine residency at Columbia University Medical Center. And then actually she was involved more and more in administration and she became senior medical director for population health and clinician engagement at Emblem Health in New York City, where she was actually involved in population health management, crisis prevention, and financial sustainability of palliative care and home care programs. Following that, and probably just four weeks ago, actually she joined the Hackensack Meridian Healthcare System, which is the largest integrated health system in New Jersey as vice president of quality and implementation science. Uh, she drives quality across the continuum of care beyond the hospitals, implementing high-quality, well-researched interventions into the daily, busy uh, clinical life. Uh, welcome, Lama, to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Khalil, for having me, and thank you for the um, introduction. Um, and, and really, my dream and my personal why is really straightforward throughout this journey. I'm really on a continuous journey to make healthcare um, the safest uh, and with the highest uh, meaningful quality standard. Um, the kind of healthcare I want uh, to give to my family as a mom, as a daughter, and as a wife. And um, as an immigrant, too, um, I want this high-quality care to be accessible to all uh, in the U.S. and overseas in Lebanon and beyond. Um, uh, I want to reach this dream through small but incremental changes while uh, continuously learning new fields, uh, even if historically uncomfortable for physicians such as uh, the payer, as you mentioned. I believe this is how I'll be a conductor of change in this stiff, rigid, but high-risk healthcare system we live in. So I'm really excited about our discussion today. Yeah, and, and th- that brings me, actually, that's a good segue to, so what what made you choose this pathway? Because a lot of doctors, like, finish medical school, you do your family medicine residency, and then for the most part, you're a clinician, you might be involved in some administrative uh, endeavors, but what made you choose this pathway? Actually, like, you know, I became a physician. That was always my dream. I did family medicine because I wanted to know a bit about everything and try to help across the continuum and many type of patients. And I did palliative care because that I felt that was needing in my um, training, um, that geriatrics and palliative care part was much needed. And I went into academia for the first four years, you know, teaching and doing quality improvement, teaching in residency medical school at Columbia University. And then I had another job after that due to a move uh, in a physician group within an ACO. So we also doing clinical programs, building program totally new from scratch. But I was the clinician doing subacute rehab, home visits. And, um, you know, uh, I had a home visit program that I built from scratch. I called it my baby uh, for two years. And then for many reasons, including financial sustainability, we couldn't finish it. So I found that, you know, at that point that that was a big reason um, why I needed to learn more and maybe do an executive MHA and learn as a physician how to sustain my program and, you know, to reach more and more more patients. So I did that. And this led me to go outside my comfort zone and understand the payer side, which was very important to be a physician leader and to do program on a bigger scale. Um, I always knew that I would be on the delivery side. Um, So the two sides that I want to learn were the payer side, which I did for the past four years. Um, And then I came back now to Hackensack and uh, hoping to kind of put 
all of this knowledge, uh, theoretical and practical together in a fully integrated health system. And maybe one day I'll work for government. I think that's an important part that many physicians feel sometimes uncomfortable, uh, but not now. Exactly. And and I think you're right. I mean, a, a, lot, a lot of the medical school education that we get is mostly like medicine and not the payer side of medicine, which is increasingly becoming a big part of the medical system, whether it's in the US, I think, and, or in other countries. That's a very important thing to understand and we physicians need to get into this uh, system. So as, as we as we talk about the payer side, can we, can we discuss the cost of healthcare in the US and how much yeah. is it as a percentage of the US gross domestic product? Uh, um, U.S. Uh, healthcare spending actually is growing and grew 2.7% just in 2021, reaching $4.3 trillion uh, or about $12,900 per person. So as a share of the gross domestic product, the healthcare spending account in 2021 for about 18.3%. That's excluding research. And it's projected that in 2040, about one in every $3, which is about 33%, if we continue on this trend, will be spent on healthcare. And when I talk healthcare, I'm talking healthcare services. I'm not talking innovation and research, which a lot of the time we say we spend a lot of money on healthcare because we are innovative. We're talking just pure the services that we provide um, on every day. And if we look back to the, like probably in 1970s, between comparing US and uh, for, with comparable average uh, countries from the OECD, we were about 6.5%. The average other country, developed country, were about 4.5%. So we're pretty similar, a little bit higher, but pretty similar in the 1970s. And the curve kept growing and we went apart. And now in, in 2021, uh, we, we were about 18.3%. And they increased to about, for average, about between 10 and 12%. So you can see the vast difference between the U.S. and others, which is not sustainable in terms of cost. But also, if we put um, on the x-axis the healthcare spending and the y-axis the quality or the performance, the U.S. is on the lower right side, meaning very high cost and still lower performance, the lowest performance actually compared to the developed countries. So that's that's really not sustainable with the continuous growth in cost and the low quality we have. And what I mean by low quality in the performance system, it's um, we have the lowest life expectancy among developed country. We have the highest infant mortality and maternal mortality in this OECD country. We have the highest disease burden with 70% of the population above the age of 65 having two or plus chronic condition. We have the highest obesity rate. We're gonna talk about palliative care. Actually, from a, especially a metric from the OECD, we don't, we're not as bad in death in the hospital. We are you know, third best after Netherlands and Switzerland with 35% of our death happening in the hospital versus like other countries such as Japan or Korea and Japan being in the 70%. So so there's something wrong with that, with this kind of uh, two side of the story that is not sustainable and we need to do something about it. Right. And I think, I mean, we're not going to get into the factors here, but I think there's multiple factors in the U.S. healthcare system that lead to this, including maybe a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of uh, middlemen, stuff like that. But I think for some reason, probably if I'm not mistaken, the cost of healthcare is like the highest uh, towards the end of life, right? Is that true? And why is that? So it's not necessarily the end of life. So um, 
so let me explain that and just a little bit of the nuance here. I mean, in general, the healthcare spending happens about 30% in the hospital, other healthcare settings such as residential, personal care, uh, what you said about health insurance and administrative costs is about 25%, physician services about 20%, retail pharmacy, uh, pharmaceutical about 10%, and you know have nursing care, dental, other services for the uh, remaining uh, about 10%. Um, so still the hospital is our among the highest, but in terms that's in terms of setting. In terms of population, usually we don't have a normal distribution. So if you take the average or the mean of all of the population, you know, usually the 90% of the population, the whole population in the US, spend 50% of the cost. And the top 5%, so 95% spend uh, the 50%, and the top 5 to 10% spend the rest of the 50%. There's a small population that usually what we call population with high cost, high need, that is usually where a lot of the spend and usually the lowest quality because more they really definitely need a lot of care because they're sick, but usually they end up being in the hospital unnecessary and there's a lot of uh, preventable uh, spend there. Um, that being said, this population usually is characteristic, the top five, 10 percent or the top one percent of the population. Some of it is end of life. Um, there was a study done in 2017, I think, in Mount Sinai, uh, and they looked at the high cost population, this like top five percent, and they found 18.2 million are usually these high cost population. Two million of them were in the end of life, like at the end, they died at the end of that year. So you have 16 million, they were not in the end of life. So Definitely, the 2 million is part of this two, big big 18 million, but it's unfair to say that if we change the way we look only at end of life and, you know, it's going to fix the, the U.S. Uh, healthcare cost. It's part of it, especially that, you know, in that year, in that study, 2.5 million died that year. As we said, 2 million were in the high cost. So definitely there is a lot to do because two of the 2.5 million we're really dying in a high cost setting, but and not necessarily the hospital, but in a setting like a lot of, you know, chemo maybe given to them or a lot of medication towards the end of life. But it's not the only problem. The other 16 million and usually their characteristics are people with frailty, disability, people of three more condition who are not necessarily at the end of life, but they have chronic comorbidities that they live with them for years that we need to think about them differently and put resources for them a little bit differently in terms of not wait for them to come to our clinic, but outreach to them proactively, have a care management for them, have home visits for them, um, a specific program, EMT program that visit them at home, uh, longitudinal care. So these are the type of care that we need to take care of, to take care of the these population and definitely paying us bigger attention to uh, this population at end of life. Yeah, so basically what we're talking about is home health and maybe chronic disease management programs to prevent people from getting admitted to the hospital for one population of patients. And then maybe the other population, and I know you've had some training in palliative care, maybe palliative care services or maybe more goals of care discussions with the family to decide on what's the best treatment options to keep their family members uh, comfortable and not maybe treat them unnecessarily in that case. Exactly. And that's what uh, palliative care is all about, to, to, to be trying to help that. Because you've got, you've, you've done, which I didn't mention at the beginning, you've done, you've done training in palliative care too, yeah. that's correct. 
there, there's a lot of people who say, okay, palliative care, I'm going to get a palliative care consult. And uh, that means the patient's end of life. And but what, I mean, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about it that are probably hopefully changing over time now. But what does palliative care specifically mean? So palliative care per the standard uh, center for advanced palliative care definition, which one of the, like the big think tank for palliative care in the U.S. and globally, is a specialized medical care for people living with a serious illness. So we didn't say end of life, living with serious illness. Um, this type of care is focused on providing relief from symptoms and stress of the illness. Uh, the goal is to really improve the quality of life of both the patient, but also their families. So the extended kind of caregiver model. Um, it's usually provided by a specialty trained uh, team of doctors, usually um, palliative care trained doctor, um, such as myself with fellowship, and also a team with nurses, social worker, chaplain, pharmacists, depending on the extension of the team. And they work together and with the patient's doctor, depending the an oncologist, cardiologist, depending on the disease, to provide really an extra layer of support. Um, and it's really focused on the patient's need and the patient at that moment, not necessarily linked to a prognosis or to tie to a six months or one year, which is different than hospice. And that's very important to find that distinction because hospice definitely provide palliative care, provide all of the service we talked about, but hospice is a Medicare benefit. It's really linked to an administrative benefit that's provided by Medicare, but also other than Medicare, because it's a good benefit that is linked to a certain disease and certain characteristics that a patient should have depending on the disease. So if they are they should have they have like a cancer should be end of life you sorry uh, end stage cancer with like no treatment uh, for chemo uh, available for curative um, or some symptom management if it's chf they should have certain criteria so there's characteristic for the disease with an association that could be prognosis of six months or less per the doctor so those are two different things hospice provides palliative care but palliative care goes in hospice, but goes beyond hospice, really to earlier in the disease to make a big difference and make sure the patient's quality of life improve and the communication, uh, making sure where the patient is and starting the conversation about their disease, the burden of their disease, what do they want, what are the preference early on. Right, because because that's part of the main thing also for complex patients is uh, communication with the family members and different teams not communicating at the same time or miscommunication. And that can lead to like family members not knowing exactly what their goals are or or what their decisions will lead to, such as, I mean, I work in the ICU. You see a patient who's complex, they get sick, and you ask, you talk to family members, you're like, oh, let's, let's proceed with the tracheostomy and peg tube placement, and then send them to a long-term acute care hospital. And that's when the course starts going up and down, and it's probably not a good course. But had the family members known what's going to happen, they may have chosen a different route for their loved one right and it's all depending on the patient is right so uh, uh or, and or the family where they are in their understanding and, and palliative care with the communication skills that the team usually have plays an important critical role that term because you know um, if someone is so emotional you cannot give them more like prognosis and this is a equal b equal c and this can happen in your disease uh, progression or your treatment they are in a totally different they are in the emotion part they, they are in the denial part so that kind of and this is why the team helped it's not all only the physician's understanding or responsibility to do all of this and this is why the importance of, of a team where sometimes maybe the social worker will visit them for two 
three days because that's what they need at this point uh, or later on the chaplain etc or, or the physician depending on the need and how, how has palliative care evolved in the u.s over time and is it uh, outpatient or inpatient or both <laughs> and then i'm going to ask you another complex question how is the payer mix for palliative care services uh, are they well reimbursed do payers acknowledge these services yeah so in terms of the us uh, i mean palliative care is, is to provide palliation right and this is was always the, the foundation of medicine to make sure to uh, relieve the suffering but the movement actually started with a hospice the hospice care movement often delivered by caregiver uh, through religious institutions so it started in the 60s with uh, dam cicely sanders a british physician um, and Brit in Great Britain, uh, and she founded the first formal hospice uh, in 1948. And the movement started trickling across the world. In 1990, the World Health Organization actually recognized palliative care as a distinct uh, specialty dedicated to the relief of suffering and improving quality of life. This kind of helped expanding more in the U.S. It was expanding a little bit more. And really in the U.S. from the 2000 to 2011, 12, it's expanded a lot uh, and for now and mainly especially in the hospital in the beginning and for now as of like 2020 or 2021 the latest uh, statistics is about 83 percent of hospital of 50 beds and above have certain presence of palliative care team the american board of medical specialty recognized hospice and palliative care as a specialty in 2006 so that's also had helped a lot that growth but really, what is it outpatient or inpatient so the growth in that period was inpatient but i would say in the last five to ten years, it grew beyond. So it grew to outpatient, to clinic. Um, in the beginning, it was embedded clinic, like you would find palliative care specialists in an oncology center or in a heart failure, like a big heart failure center, heart, pay, heart failure clinic. And then it grows to standalone outpatient palliative care. Then it, it grew definitely to a big, talk about it from the payer perspective, a big population health approach for a lot of the payer, which is home palliative care. And then also you mentioned long-term care, LTAC, and then uh, subacute rehab, where also it's a very growing uh, field in that aspect. Because as we know now in subacute rehab, the patient who live there are patients who are too sick to go home, but too good for the hospital. So usually they end up in that uh, settings and they get going forth a few days in the home, they go back to the hospital, back to rehab, ED visit, back to home, etc. And the circle continues. So there's a huge need there. And there's a lot of services that are being done in that aspect. I mean, in terms of the, the payment, we can talk a little bit about the value of palliative care, because that will uh, explain a little bit the payment. But uh, just in general, uh, the payment doesn't, doesn't do it justice, because our payment is still very much based on fee-for-service. And as you said, with this extended team work that most of these services on a fee-for-service base and a time perspective, because you want to do this communication and these all of these discussion um, is not um, is not payable, right? It's not reimbursed. Is uh, you know, our system reimbursed based on productivity and just more and more services, which is totally opposite than that. Right. So, I mean, there is definitely newer uh, value-based program and models that really support that. And the more people and um, physician and health system take risk, the more palliative care makes sense to uh, introduce that there. One thing I want to mention, which is a very dear topic to my heart in terms of palliative care is primary palliative care. There will be never enough teams to take care of all of our aging population and the population who's going to have more and more cancer and chronic disease as we grow older. Um, so really, and nor should it be, the solution really would be to have more doctors and teams who are 
primary specialist, either primary care, family physician, uh, you know, uh, uh, pulmonary, CO, uh, uh, cardiology, oncologists who have what we call primary palliative care skills, know how to do the discussions, you know, know when to stop, give the patient their need at that point, uh, do good, decent symptom management, and refer to those specialists when needed. So that's really a growing part that is really essential to make sure we have a sustainability uh, for our aging population. Right, and that would be an important thing because you want to try to do these services before the patients end up in the intensive care unit or elsewhere. Because at the end of the day, I mean, the goal of healthcare is to keep people comfortable. And sometimes we do things that are not keeping people comfortable or just prolonging their life for no reason. So basically, have, have there been studies on how palliative care affects the cost of healthcare? Yeah, there's actually a lot of studies uh, about that, and, uh, about the benefits of uh, palliative care and how it affects quality and cost. So I want to go back to like the basic definition of value. So if we take value is equal quality over cost, right? So quality in the denominator, cost in the denominator. So anything that increased quality and decreased cost will increase your value. So that program, whatever that is, will have a big value. So palliative care is one of those, because in terms of the Q, the quality, the numerator, a lot of studies have shown that it causes less depression, less symptom burden, people feel more control, the benefit extend, as we said, to the family, to the caregiver around you, so better patient experience, uh, greater satisfaction, it reduces readmission, reduces time in the ICU, reduces discharge to home. Uh, and improve patient satisfaction. All of these, you live in, in the hospital and all of us live in healthcare, are quality metrics that we are responsible of. In CMS, uh, in US News, in, in NCQA, he did all of these measures that we are responsible of uh, against all regulatory bodies, including payers, um, are these quality metrics. So improvement of these quality metrics definitely uh, improve uh, uh, value. And in terms of lower cost, uh, also due to the decreased readmission, uh, decrease avoiding unnecessary hospitalization, uh, treating at home, having the conversation early on, these are also led to decreased utilization and overutilization, which is a big part of the driver, as we just discussed, of cost. Um, so, so this is where you see the great value of palliative care. And there's a very important study, actually, was that is a landmark of a palliative care study was done in 2011 by Dr. Timel from Harvard and was published in New England Journal of Medicine. It was specific for palliative care provided for patients with non-small cell lung cancer. And it has shown that there's a benefit in mortality. They Patients who receive palliative care actually live longer because of all of the above. They live on average about 2.7 months longer. So there's also some type of mortality benefit for certain subpopulation um, that could be probably another, but not much studies was done in that. Right. And, and here's the importance of like, yeah, exactly. Palliative care services uh, that are that are early on provided to complex patients. But my question for you is, you look, you look at the, you've discussed several things to decrease the cost of healthcare, including palliative care, which is increasing in the U.S. over time. We're discussing chronic disease management and home healthcare and ACOs and stuff like that, which are also affecting or, or are also taking effect because of a lot of the healthcare laws that came out. But you look at all of this and the cost of healthcare is still continuing to go up. So what's, what's going wrong and how can we reverse this trend? It's not easy, uh, but I think it's not impossible. Definitely, it's not easy. We have to understand the challenges and understand the population we're dealing with. So definitely moving away from fee-for-service and paying for real values. 
okay, not like um, sometimes a sophisticated calculated value, really what matter for the patient or when change morbidity and mortality. So really trying to be away from gaming the system to gain quality metrics, but really measures uh, what matters most for the patients and change the real quality of life. What is different now is we know in the last few years that this status quo cannot continue. We talked about the value. We have an aging population. The family unit is not family anymore. We don't have the caregiver. They're not the patients, you know, as, as usually alone and you are in the ICU and you know their loneliness is a big issue. So we can depend on uh, on the caregiver, but also we cannot depend on the workforce. We have a severe work shortage in general in healthcare and specifically in the home. After COVID, people are asking for more home type of services. The home reimbursement is not uh, good. So my belief really is two things. Um, one is uh, really pay attention first on short-term goal, how to move that is the waste. It's addressing the waste. The waste in the U.S. is approximately around $190 billion, okay? And then there are studies after studies that shows that there is really small things that you can do in quality improvement in, failure, in, in the area of failure of uh, uh, care delivery, so to fix that, or failure of care coordination. Those small things or some pricing failure that you can start on smaller basis. You don't have to fix the whole. If you only do 10 to 15% of this big waste uh, in healthcare, um, before going to like bigger changes, there is some something that we can slow down uh, the trend on a short-term basis. So I think that is really, really very important. So on a smaller scale, if you are wherever you are in the healthcare system, in a hospital, in a clinic, in an ACO, really try to pay attention to, or even in pharmaceutical or in payers, where in your system, in your processes, in your quality improvement, that where you can do project that addresses the waste while keeping the quality high, so that it, it starts kind of flattening a little bit some of the cost. Uh, and from there, we can move further for our longer term, which needed like the longer term solution needs really a policy change. And we know how you know Washington and the politics and how healthcare is stuck in the politics. This is more a long-term, uh, you know, my personal belief is, you know, having accessible, equitable care for all is the way to go. And then we can start by advocacy from our own group of what is right for our own group and our own specialty uh, and how to decrease the waste. Um, but really, um, and more healthcare people should run for office. Not me. That's not, I don't want to do politics. <laughs> at all. But really more people should run uh with healthcare background um, and to run for offices to change things on the long term. But on the short term, as this can be a small thing, looking at your processes, where is the waste and try to cut it is the way to go. Right, exactly. Cut, cut the waste. But also, that's why people should run for offices because there's also a lot of waste in terms of with the payers, with negotiating with insurance companies, medication denials, pharmaceutical companies, drug prices. And There's PDF. a lot of stuff that can be cut down very easily, but that also needs policy and that needs lobbying and advocacy. And I think that's what physicians uh, lack at this point. Right, exactly. And, I, and this is why, remember, as I told you, like where healthcare is, like the different setting, the cost. So each of us have a play a role, whether in the hospital, whether in the pharmaceutical, whether in administrative cost, whether in uh, labs and stuff. So if you start small, and build on small wins. I'm very kind of uh, very big on like those small wins, not go and change the word suddenly because it's not possible. Um, I, I think we can reach a certain 
stabilization to hopefully these long-term strategy to uh, start taking effect when we do uh, more blunt changes over time. Right, exactly. And at some point that will need to be done because the system cannot sustain the way. Cannot sustain, exactly. So actually healthcare spending may, 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 may foreshadow defense spending very soon. I don't know. So, so what does the future look like, you think? I think the future really is a move towards what matters for the patient. Try to have the language. Um, I think language matters. Um, you know, I know we need to do some checklist and some something that, you know, sometimes we say, oh, it doesn't make sense. These checklists in the EMR doesn't make sense. And why are we doing this and what matters? But I challenge myself first and challenge others to kind of be more systematic and more visionary in how to address this. Because if we keep saying this doesn't work and without changing it, it's, it's just nothing's going to change. It's not going to work and the system going to continue. So if we really want to change it, we want to embrace some of it that we can do to make sure we keep the lights on wherever we are. If you are in a, a hospital or if you are in a clinic, just to keep things moving and people needs to work and people needs to be seen and patient needs to be seen. Make sure you have what matters for you and for the patients as your North Star while doing the checklist and while fighting for what how to change. Um, so proving on a smaller scale what works show and this is where the a little bit of that knowledge of having the business side comes into perspective because you need to kind of ensure that you know when you present a program you present how it affects the patient which is very important always should be your north star but also how it affects the system how it affects the the bottom line because at the end of the day the hospital needs to pay money or the clinic needs to pay money to make sure um, it sustain itself as a business where people live on salary from it and on wages from it so so i think that's really what really needs to change um keeping always patient first um but you know in your mind just make sure whatever you're doing as a program how you make sure how is it financially sustainable who are your stakeholder um how you make sure it continues how you make sure you pivot if it's not working and not being just attached to something just for the sake of it um and then putting it in the big context of like making sure that, uh, you know, there is always some uh, growth and some uh, work, whether you do it on a personal level or you do it as a society to change more the politics and the policy on the long term. So I think this balance is, is very hard, but if you start with ourselves um, and every person do a little bit, I think we can reach uh, something very soon. And I'm an optimistic person by nature, so I'm, I really hope uh, this will work. And then um, this is why I'm here and I'm, I'm embarking on this new journey and I'm really hoping to to help the team make a change. Yeah, you beat me. I was going to ask you if you're optimistic or pessimistic, but you are optimistic about the future of healthcare and hopefully you will, you will start uh, small steps uh, at your new health system and, uh, and make some uh, big changes uh, over there that hopefully will reflect on other health systems in the future. Yeah, and we have to all learn from each other. I think that's uh, that's very, very essential. We should not work in silos at all. Um, we should be open uh, to working with other health system, but other fields. You know, don't be scared of outreaching the payers. There's there's good and bad people in every sector, right. government and stuff. Just you know, um, try to get the the good in every one, and try to align incentive where people are in time. What's their 
culture, what they stand for, what you stand for, and try to align them, try to see where is the incentive in the system to make sure there's a financial sustainability for whatever you're doing. Um, that's what's going to, uh, I think, change um, uh, the, the needle a little bit. Right, I agree. I think just getting people together from, from the different sectors of, of healthcare, because there's always a tendency to blame others for uh, what's happening. But when once you talk to other people, you can fix it together in that case. So thank you. Thank you, Lama, for being on the podcast. And uh, thank you for all the work you do in improving the quality of healthcare and, and, and also at the same time, cutting trying to cut healthcare costs that are not sustainable anymore. Thank you for having me. And uh, it's a great podcast. I always follow follow uh, that, um, you know, to see how uh, people are doing uh, our Lebanese physician uh, here and back in Lebanon. And um, I hope all of this knowledge that we gain here, um, we try to work as much as possible with stakeholders in Lebanon um, and the uh, area uh, to have this expertise again beyond uh, the US. Yeah, I agree 100%. Thank you. Thank you very much, Khalid. Thanks.